Um, I'm going to begin with a question this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you this is a rhetorical question. You're supposed to answer it in your head. You don't need to shout out the answers. And the only reason I tell you that is because in the first service, everybody shouted out the answers, and it was completely confusing. Um, I probably don't need to tell you. You guys are obviously the smarter of the two groups, right? So you <laughs> you're probably get that. But, but let me just give you a question to begin chewing on as we get into the Word of God in Ephesians this morning. And here it is. If you could only pray for one thing for the people you love the most, what would it be? If you could only pray for one thing for the people that you really, really care about, what would you pray for? Let me ask you something else. You ever been in a situation where, and this happens on Sunday morning sometimes, we're fellowshipping in between and you're catching up with people or maybe in your grace group or something, and and, um, you, you say to somebody, hey, how's it going? Which means, hi, how are you? It doesn't mean how's it going. You don't expect them to actually tell you how it's going, right? But have you ever said to someone, how's it going? And they just burst into tears. And you're like, oh, you misunderstood what I was saying. I was just trying to be polite. I don't actually care about you. I don't actually want to know how you're doing. And now here you are. You're crying. You're telling me you've had this horrible week. And and, and a person just pours out their heart to you. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. There's nothing I can do for this person. And so your answer to them is what? I'll, I'll pray for you, right? I'll pray for you. Now, you don't have to raise your hand at this, but how many of you have ever said to somebody, I'll pray for you, and not done it? Right? And it, it's happened so many times, that, and I'm so sincere when I'm hearing this person, and I'm saying, I'll pray for you, but essentially it translates as, wow, good luck with that, you know? Um, because, because my mind gets lost, and I forget that I promised to pray, and then I, I see them a week later, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I was supposed to pray for that person. And then I'm searching my head going, what was it I was supposed to pray about? What's going on? You know, and it's, it's, it's brutal to be, to be honest enough to just go, there are times, probably with some of you, that I have said I would pray for you and not done it. Um, so one of the things I try to do is I'll, I'll often just pray for a person right here, right now. <laughs> You know, instead of saying, I'll pray for you, I'll just say, can I just pray for you right now and just put a hand on their shoulder and pray for them? Um, when I say I'll pray for you, I mean it, but um, sometimes my best intentions get lost. But I want you to think about this. What if the person that you need to pray for is a person that you really, really, really love? I mean, a person that you absolutely care about with every fiber of your being, your spouse, your child, your best friend, and what if they're going through a horrible crisis? I'm not talking about, you know, gee, I had a bad week at work kind of crisis. I'm talking about I'm in intensive care kind of crisis, right? I'm talking about parents sending their child off to war kind of crisis. When your child goes off to war and you're a Christian parent, you think you pray for your child? I bet you do. When, you, when your husband or your wife is laying in intensive care and the machines are beeping and the tubes are all hooked up, you think you pray diligently or do you think you just sort of forget about that? You pray diligently, right? The things that matter the most, when, when something really, really matters and you actually love people and you actually care, you pray for them. You know what? You know what transformed my prayer life? I've always been a person who believes in prayer. 
Um, and I've always been a person who believes in prayer a lot more than I pray. And, and I have read countless books on prayer, and I have been to countless seminars on prayer, and I have preached countless sermons on prayer. But preaching on prayer, reading about prayer, is not the same as becoming a man of prayer, right? You know what really transformed my life and helped me become someone who prays? Having children. Right? Any parents out there know what I'm talking about? You, you have children, you start to pray. I remember when my kids were babies, I remember going into their room at night, and there's a crib, and there's just a little tiny, tiny person laying in this crib, just peacefully, their backs going up and down as they breathe, and I just remember laying my hands on these children and tears rolling down my face as I'm praying for them with every fiber of my being, all of my passion, all of my concern, pouring out my heart to God, saying, oh God, please take care of this child. Please, Father, save this child. Please do an amazing work in this child's life. When they're little, I prayed for them like that. You know, another season of my kids' lives when I prayed for them a lot is when they were teenagers. <laughs> like when they got their driver's license. You, you really pray as a parent when you hand them the keys to your car, right? And they're heading out in your car to go somewhere. And, you're, you know, and I, I'm telling you, you know, my kids all started driving in the era in which we had cell phones. And, man, there was a lecture to be heard, right? You will not text. You will not call. You will not look down at the screen. You will not do any of this while you are driving. Oh, no, Dad, we would never do that, right? And you know what? I have been to the funerals of teenagers who have been killed while texting and driving. And so it's a big deal to me, right? And I remember telling them, listen, if I ever find out, if I ever find out that you were doing this, you are going to lose your phone, you are going to lose your car key, you are going to lose your car, and you're very likely going to lose at least a portion of your life. Okay? Because I care. I don't want to see them ruined because of some dumb, quick decision, right? And so when they started driving, I really prayed. And, and when they started dating, I really prayed. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just be honest, I'll just tell you the truth. I prayed more for my daughters than my son. <laughs> I just, oh God, please protect these kids, right? Pouring out my heart because I love them. And if you're a parent, you don't need me to explain anymore. I love my kids with a love that I cannot explain. And I'm telling you, I really pray for them. I never say to my kids, I'll pray for you and then forget. I always pray for them. And, I, and my hope is that when they're out there and they're thinking about texting while they drive or they're out there on a date or they're out there with their friends and they're thinking about doing something they shouldn't be doing, I, my hope is not that they'll say, man, if my dad finds out, he'll kill me. My hope is that they'll think, my dad's probably praying for me right now. And that they'll be motivated by that to say, I'm going to do what's right. I pray for my kids every single day. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, and you really, 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 really love somebody, and you know that they're in a real crisis, you're going to pray for them. So let me ask you again, just to think about this. If you could only pray for one thing for the people you love the most, what would you pray for? I ask you to think about that question because we're in Ephesians 1 in our study through the book of Ephesians and we're coming to the end of Ephesians chapter 1 and we're, coming to, we're turning a corner in Ephesians to this place where Paul, the apostle, the one who wrote the letter, is about to explain 
what he prays for for them. And we're going to get a glimpse into Paul's prayer life here. And basically, Paul is going to say to them, I want you to know, I am praying for you every single day, and I never stop. I'm just praying for you and praying for you and praying for you. And it made me think, wouldn't you love to have somebody like the Apostle Paul pray for you? How cool would that be, right? Because you've got to figure, the Apostle Paul, God listens, right? Don't you think? If Robert prays for me, I'm like, okay, whatever. But if the Apostle Paul was praying for me, how awesome would that be? Just imagine if you could have the Apostle Paul praying for you. We're going to see in the book of Ephesians today that the Apostle Paul was praying for you and what he was praying for you, and why it was so important to him. So I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, New Testament, right after the book of Galatians, and before the book of Philippians, you're going to come to Ephesians. If you don't already, put a marker there, because we're going to be in this book for the next several months. And I want you to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15 this morning. Here's what Paul writes. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and <coughs> excuse me, and your love for all the saints, do not cease, notice he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he says, listen, I want you to know it's not a once in a while thing. It's not the kind of thing where I see you on Sunday and I hear what's going on and I go, listen, I'll pray for you, and then I forget. He says, I do not cease praying for you. I'm giving thanks for you regularly, and I'm lifting you up to God regularly. This is what I do. I'm praying for you. Now, by the way, it's important for us to remember, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but let me remind you. The book of Ephesians is unique among all of Paul's letters in the New Testament because all of the other letters, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, all these other books that he wrote, they're addressed to a church, and they deal with the specific things that that church is dealing with. But the book of Ephesians, most Bible scholars do not believe that it was written to just the Ephesian church. In fact, it probably got its start in the Ephesian church, but it was meant to be circulated. In fact, in the oldest manuscripts that we have, we, it's not, even the Ephesians are not even mentioned in the letter. And the other thing he doesn't mention is it doesn't mention any specific individual and he doesn't mention any specific heresy or false teaching that he's trying to correct in the book of Ephesians. In all of his other letters, he does one or both of those things. But the book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul writes, not just to the Ephesian believers, but he's writing to all Christians over all time in all places. And so when he is saying that he is praying for them, he's also saying that he's praying for us. The book of Ephesians is a sort of one-size-fits-all letter to Christians everywhere. And it was circulated and is still being circulated today among the churches. So Paul's not just writing to the Ephesians or the Corinthians or the Galatians, as the case may be. He's writing to us. This, this, this book could just as well be called the letter of Paul to the Duardians because it's just as much written to us as it was written to the Ephesians. And it is just as applicable in our lives today as it was in their lives as well. So what could be so important to Paul that he says, I am going to pray for Christians everywhere over all time consistently and not stop? What is it he's going to pray for? <laughs> Interestingly, he prays that we would know God better. He says, of all the things I could pray for you, here's what I want for you. 
I want you to know him. I just want you to know God better. Now let's not get ahead of ourselves. Go back to verse 15. It begins with these words, for this reason. And whenever you see words like that, oftentimes you'll see a verse begin with the word therefore, or it will begin with the phrase for this reason. If it begins with for this reason or therefore, what it means is the things that I have just said, I want you to look back at those things because it's because of those things that I'm about to say what I'm about to say, okay? So he says, for this reason, in verse 15, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mentions of you in my prayers. I'm praying diligently for you for this reason. What reason? All we have to do is go back to the verses we were looking at. Remember, we looked at the longest sentence in the Bible last week, verse 3 to verse 14, and in that passage, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he chose us. He's talking about the fact that he predestined us. He's talking about the fact that he adopted us, he redeemed us, he forgave us, he lavished upon us a rich spiritual inheritance sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about this amazing good news of redemption that he's just poured out to us, and he's basically saying, now for this reason, let me pray that God will help you to understand. Because here's the thing, you guys. Even though we know this stuff, we don't get it. We really don't grasp the depth of what he's trying to say here. To, to think that, that we were chosen by God, adopted by God, predestined before the foundation of the world to be his children, to experience the full inheritance, to be joint heirs with Jesus, chosen by God for that. If we, you know, we just don't understand it. If we did, we'd live differently. That's how I know we don't get it. Because if we really got it, if we really understood the significance of what he is saying here, we would be so dramatically different than everybody else in the world because of the way we would be living our lives. If we really grasp the fact that he loves us this much and that we are already adopted by the king, that we are children of the king, and that our inheritance can never be taken from us, would we be living in fear of anything? Would, would we be living in disobedience at any time? We don't get this. And so he says, I know I've been explaining this, but I also know you don't get it. And so in addition to telling you, I'm praying for you. I am praying that God will open your eyes and that you will really know how amazing his grace is. We sang those words today, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sang about his great faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Man, if the words of those songs are true, our lives should be absolutely one million percent in his hands. So much so that everyone who sees us recognizes the difference. And so the reason I know that we don't understand this is because I look in the mirror and I see the struggle I have just to walk in this truth. And you know what? Nothing personal, but I'm watching some of you too. And we're all struggling with this. And so what does Paul pray for us? That we would know God better. That we would know his love. That we would know his hope. Look at what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will be better informed than the person sitting next to you. Is that what it says? Is that what your translation says? He says, 
I pray that your eyes will, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you can win doctrinal arguments against believers and non-believers alike. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. Look at verse 18. That the God of our Lord, oh, excuse me, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He's saying, I want God to open your eyes so you can really understand the hope of your calling. This is such a great prayer. Because most of us don't have a clue how deep his love is. Most of us don't have a a clue how great our hope is. Most of us don't have a clue how high our calling is or how rich our inheritance is. We don't have a clue how great his power is toward us and how strong his might is toward us. We, we sort of get it. Theologically, we could answer the questions on the test, but we don't really get it. And I know because of the way we live. Oh, that we would understand the depth of his love for us and how great it is. But when it comes right down to it, so many of us, although we could answer the question if asked on a quiz about how great his love is for us, so many of us live as though we have to be responsible for taking care of ourselves. That if we don't figure it out, we'll, we'll never walk in, the, in, in victory. We, we, we read that we're adopted children of the king and our inheritance can never be taken from us, and yet we live as though we're peasants with just, just grabbing at straws trying to somehow just survive the day. And God says, I have something so much better in mind for you. I have this abundant life. He says... I want you to know God better. And this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religious system in the history of the world because all of man-made religious systems are all basically the same. There's philosophies and sets of rules. There are things that we have to learn about and understand intellectually and then do. And yet, Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. It's a completely different category of things. Now, we're going to try to understand this better, and to do that, we're going to have to get into the Greek again. And, you know, we have to do that periodically as we look at the New Testament because it's written in Greek, and a lot of times the English doesn't do it justice. So um, I was thinking about this this week. Um, How many of you, just raise your hand if you have any formal training in Greek. One, two, a couple of us, okay? So here's the thing. It occurs to me. I stand up here almost every week and I say something about this word in Greek means, and you all go, oh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I could be making this stuff up. I could just be absolutely lying to you. You would have no idea, right? Because you're not trained in Greek. You don't know Greek, right? So I go, oh, there's this Greek word, and it means this and not that. And you're like, oh, my pastor's really smart, you know, and I'm just making this stuff up. I promise I don't do that. But I could, and you wouldn't know. (laughs) But let me ask you this question. Again, show of hands, if you had at least like one year of high school Spanish. If you know just some kind of Spanish, a little bit of Spanish, right? A A lot of us, okay? So if you did one year of Spanish in high school, you can understand the Greek here, okay? Because the two are very, very similar in this case. Um, in Spanish 1 in high school, when you're a freshman, they teach you this. Um, 
In Spanish, there are two specific words that are very individual that are both translated as the, the verb to know in English. Okay? Uh, one is conocer, and that is to know a person. And the other is saber, and that is to know a fact. Okay? Completely different words. But, but in English, they're the same word, to know. And we see this word to know multiple times in this passage. And in Greek, it works just the same. In, in, in Spanish, if you want to talk about knowing a fact, you would say, yo sé que uno y uno es dos. I know that one and one is two, right? That's a fact. That's saber. You, you would say, yo sé que los Bruins de UCLA están muchos mejor que los Trojans de USSA. Right? You would, that's just a fact, right? Okay? But, but in Spanish, there's a different word for to know a person, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that word saber to talk about knowing a person. If I say I know my wife, I would say, um, yo conozco a mi esposa Christy. I know my wife Christy, right? I would say, yo conozco los personas en esta iglesia. I know the people in this church. It's a totally different meaning, right? We understand that. In Greek, it's exactly the same. We have these two different Greek words here. One of them is to know a person, and the other one is to know a fact. And so, um, in verse 17, if you go back and look at Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The Greek word for knowledge there is epignosis. And, and what it means is to know a person. It's talking about a spiritual, it's talking about an experiential knowledge of a person, a relationship. Okay? And so he's saying, I'm praying that you will know God relationally. And it's not just what you know about him. Because how many of us know that there are scholars out there? who have studied the Bible backward and forward and can tell you about all the doctrines and all the theology and all that stuff, and they don't know Jesus personally, right? That's possible. So it's not just about knowing about God. He says, I'm praying that you will know him, that you'll have this relationship, that you'll know him personally. And how does that happen for us? How do we come to know him personally? How do we come to know him better? Well, at least part of the answer is found in verse 18. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He says that you will know what is the hope, and he goes on and gives us all that, right? It's, that's the other kind of no. This is the factual kind of no. He's saying, you, it's, it's one thing to say, I know Jesus. Me and Jesus are pals. Me and Jesus hang out together. We walk together. Isn't that wonderful? And there's a lot of people that that's as far as their relationship with God goes. It's very sort of feely. It's very emotional. There's not much thought about it. It's just, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. Leave me alone. Let's leave it at that. He goes, that's not all that I'm praying for. I don't want you just to know him personally. I want you to know about him. And the implication is, you can't really know him well unless you know about him. You have to have some clue who he is. You see why I keep saying 
that doctrine is intensely practical. It's intensely practical. Don't get caught up in this idea of, you know what, I'm just going to let these doctrinal arguments be for the theologians and the PhDs and the people who sit in desks and smoke cigars and write books. But me, I'm just going to walk with Jesus. You can't walk with Jesus to the fullest of what he has in mind for you unless you know something about who he is. And so it's important to know these things. The relational knowledge of God comes through our relationship with Jesus, but it's not enough to know about him and it's not enough just to know him. It's both. I'm married to my wife. So I don't just study her and learn facts about her, right? To, to be married to her is to walk through life with her, right? It's to be in partnership with her. It's to, it's to know her intimately. And in that way, I come to really know her as I walk through life with her. But that doesn't mean I don't know about her. I know how tall she is. I know how old she is. I know um, what are some of the most important issues in her life and what her values are. I know a lot about her schedule and all of that kind of stuff. I know some facts about her, and knowing those facts about her helped me in knowing her. And so he says, you need to both know the facts about God, and you need to know him. God wants us to know him. When it, when it comes to my wife, I know her in ways that none of you do. Like, like she, if she's hurting, and she's masking that, and just putting on a happy face, and saying hello to everybody, I can tell. I know. I just, there's a look in her eyes, I've seen it, I know what it is, and I can tell when she's hurting. You know, there's also a look that's just known as the look, <laughs> that, that when she gives me that look, it means you're in serious trouble, mister, if you do not change course right now. There's that look, right? I know that look. You could be in the room with her, see that look, and think nothing of it. I'm in the room with her, I see that look, it changes my behavior, Right? <laughs> And, and some of you are sitting here going, oh, you know, I don't think she would be like that. I've never seen that look. Well, consider yourself blessed. <laughs> you don't know her like I do. Epignosis, to know someone. That's what God has in mind. So how does he want us to know him? Does he want us to know facts about him, or does he want us to know him relationally? Yes, he wants both. And that's what Paul is praying for. He's saying, I want you not to just go, you know what, I'm just kind of a feely person, so I'm just going to sort of chill with Jesus, and it's just going to be me and Jesus, and it's going to all be fine, but I'm not really going to think deep thoughts about him. He says, no, that's not enough. And he also says, it's not enough if you're a thinker. And you go, you know what, I, just, I read theology for fun. I study the Bible in the original languages. This is my thing. This is what I'm into, and I can answer all the questions about the doctrine but I never really have poured out my heart to him. I never really put my trust in him. I just sort of know about him. He goes, no, that's not enough. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Where does this knowledge, this two-sided knowledge of God come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. He's praying that he would give us this spirit. Now, the word spirit there is, a, is the same Greek word that is used for the Holy Spirit, and it's also used as a spirit in general. And it depends on which translators and which theologians you read, which way it goes. But I'm not going to worry about it too much either way, because both are true. 
He has given us this Spirit in the person of the Holy Spirit, which we saw back in 13, verse 13. And so you can know all about theology, but if the Spirit of God doesn't enlighten your heart, you can't know God. You're utterly dependent upon God's grace. If He doesn't reveal Himself. And on the other hand, if you don't know what's true about God, then you can't really know Him either. Because if you don't understand the facts about God, at least at a basic level, then you run this risk that the God that you are worshiping in your mind is not the God of the Bible. One of my absolute favorite books of all time is a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And his opening sentence of the book is this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because what we understand to be true about God will flesh itself out in our lives. If we know that God loves us, if we know that God is all-powerful, if we know that God is unchanging, if we know that God is holy, if we know that God is just, if we know that God is merciful, if we know that God has all power over everything and everyone, and he loves me with an endless love, you tell me this, what do I need to be afraid of? Why do I need to live in fear? If, if God is really like that, do I, is there any reason to ever disobey a God like that? See, if we don't understand who he is, then we live with this erroneous view of God and we've created in our own minds an image of God who really isn't God. You know what that's called? An idol. We have to be careful, church. We do need to know who he is. We need to know what the word says about him. I'm not saying that you can't know him until you can pass a theology test. I knew almost no theology when I came into a saving relationship with Jesus. Almost none. I'd been walking with Jesus for years before it ever even occurred to me that I need to study the scripture for doctrine. I mean, I just loved him. And he was changing my life, and it was great. I'm not saying you can't know him, but I'm saying you cannot become mature in him until you know something of who he is. And you're at great risk when you don't know because you can easily be worshiping an idol. How important is it to know about God? It's pretty important. Because nothing matters more than knowing Him. And if you don't know about Him, how, you can know it? how can you know Him? That's why Paul constantly prays that we will understand these truths, these grand truths of Scripture, His calling, His inheritance, His power toward us, and, and the strength of His might. Look at verse 18 and 19. I pray that the... <coughs> Excuse me. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. We need to know these things. We need to know what's true about Christ or we will never walk with him in confidence and hope and joy. We will always walk in fear and trepidation. We need to know about him. Now look at verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a great benediction to the first chapter of Ephesians. He says, don't forget who this Jesus is. 
that I'm praying that you will know better. Don't forget who he is. Who is this Jesus that he wants us to know? Jesus is the one who is raised from the dead. I mean, I know Easter's around the corner. We're going to be talking about this for the next few weeks. Raised from the dead, defeating sin and death on the cross. That's who we're talking about. The one who is raised from the dead. The one who is seated at the right hand of God. Now, when you read that he's seated at the right hand of God, because of colloquialisms in American English, we tend to misunderstand what that means. We have a saying, my right-hand man, right? And what that means is, like, the vice president or, or, or my administrative assistant, the person that I rely on, the person that helps the boss is the right-hand man. They're not the boss, but they're the, they're the one who helps the boss, right? And when we think of him being seated at the right hand of the Father, we go, oh, so if I picture this, there's God and this amazing giant throne in heaven, and then there's a little kid throne at the right with Jesus sitting on it, right? That's how some of us picture it. But we're misunderstanding because this idea of being at the right hand of the Father is a colloquialism that does not mean vice president. It means he who has all authority. To be at the right hand of the Father is to be seated on the Father's throne. So Jesus and the Father are one. So when we talk about the authority of Jesus, we're talking about the authority of the Father. We're talking about he who is raised, who is seated at the right hand of God in the place of all authority in heaven. And everything on earth and heaven is subject to him. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, all leaders, all kings, all spirits, all angels, all demons, everything is under his authority. And we see this beautifully all throughout the Gospels where we see Jesus exercising authority over all these things. Remember when Jesus is on the boat and the storm's coming and the guys are freaking out and they're going, we're going to die, we're going to die, and he's sleeping? And he gets up and they're going, don't you care that we're going to die and the waves are breaking over the boat? And Jesus goes, shh, be still. And the storm stops and the sea is calm. And we go, oh, he's got authority over nature. And then he, 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 they finish the trip, they go to the other side, and what do they meet? A demon-possessed man who lives among the tombs, and he's running around like a crazy person. And Jesus speaks to the demons, and he has thousands of demons inside of him. And Jesus speaks to the demons and says, get out. Sends them into a bunch of pigs, and the pigs run over the cliff. And you go, oh, he's got authority over Satan. And you see somebody who, who's been sick and, and bleeding for years, and she's seen every doctor there is, and they've only made her worse. And all she does is touch his cloak, and she's instantaneously healed. And you go, oh. He's got authority over illness. He's got authority, you guys, over everything. So let's not diminish this invitation to know him. Look who we're being asked to know. Look who we're being asked to know about. The one who was raised from the dead. The one who sits at the right hand of the Father. The one who has authority over everything and everyone. And every name that is given in heaven and on earth have been subjected to him and placed under his feet. What an incredible benediction. What a mighty God we serve. Awesome. Awesome. And so Paul devotes his life to praying. 
that we would know that God. The God who is great. The God who is greater than all. Uh, by the way, let me just take a second on this. Um, if, you, if you have any friends who are Muslim or you're ever talking to people about what Islam teaches and how they view Jesus, they, they see Jesus as a, as a prophet. There's a lot of respect for Jesus in Islam. But here's the problem. We say that he's God. And to the Muslim, that's blasphemy. Because what is the, what is the foundation of Islam? It's Allah Akbar, right? God is greater. That's what that means. God is greater. The greatness of God is the foundation of Islam, right? And so they struggle with the idea that somehow this God who is greater than everyone could somehow become a human being. How is that possible? What a disgrace. What a condescension. How pathetic that he would actually become one of us. And not only that, but that he would subject himself to us so that we would spit on him and whip him and nail him to a cross and he would let his creation kill him. To the Muslim, that's incomprehensible. How could the one who is greater than all allow something like that? And here's what they don't see. To have a God who is at the, seated on the throne of heaven, who is the creator of all things, who has dominion and power and authority over everyone and everything that exists or ever will exist. To have a God who is that great and for him to see his creation wallowing in the mire of sin without him and to say, I will condescend because my love is so great that he actually pays the price for our sin, there is no better illustration of the greatness of God. Our God is greater. And that's the one we've been invited to know better. And Paul devotes his life to praying that we will know that God with all of our hearts. And I just want you to know, as your pastor, that is my prayer for each and every one of you that you'll know him more. The hope of his calling. The, the depth of his love. The strength of his might toward you. That's my constant prayer for all of you. To know Jesus. Because he is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And there is no true life apart from him. And so if we have this God who is that great, and if his desire is for us to know him better, let me just get really practical. What are you going to do to make sure you know him better? What are you going to do with your time? Are you going to pick up this book and read it on your own and ask the Spirit to enlighten your heart so you will understand and be transformed by his word? Or are you going to leave this book sitting in your car so that it's conveniently located when you show up at church next week so you could pull it out and have it in your hand when someone teaches you from it? Are you, are you going to become a person of prayer who actually pours out your heart to a living God and is willing to obey Him? Or are you going to just be a person who sort of waves at Him as you go by, thanks Him at lunch, thanks Him at dinner, and pays Him no attention? What are you going to do in your personal life, to know him better. He's not hiding. As we pray, I pray for you every day 
that you will know him better.